So after staff meeting this week, as he read through some of these texts, Steve and Ethan both looked at me and said, now we're depressed. John, this morning, he comes up, talking to me before the service about reading the scripture, he says, man, I've been depressed just reading this text. Our goal this morning is not to depress you. The goal of this text this morning of Amos is not to throw us into some kind of mire and stay there. But it does serve a purpose for us. In fact, Paul reminds us that all of these things have been written for our instruction, for our learning, for our example of how to apply and how to relate to God. So this morning, as we look at the book of Amos, um, which, by the way, um, I did not choose this book. Steve assigned it to me. So this is what he thinks of me. He took Jonah, right? So much easier. But as we jump into Amos, let me, let me just first start by setting for you the context of where Amos lands in the canon. And amongst these, the book of the Twelve, um, the, the Twelve Prophets, the Twelve Minor Prophets, Amos really sits right at the beginning of what we would call the rising conflict. There's, there's somewhat of a structure to how the Minor Prophets are put together. In fact, Hosea and Joel really serve as an introduction to the book of the Twelve and what unfolds over the next several books as God reveals his word through his prophets. Though they do not fall exactly in chronological order, they're very close. So Hosea and Joel introduce two big themes for us, right? The, the love of God, the pursuing tenacious love of God for his people, and the fact that judgment will come for those who do not repent. And these introduce the Twelve and now we come to Amos, and Amos is this sustained word of judgment, not only on God's people, but on the nations is where we begin. And so Amos stands here, first speaking, his focus is against the, the northern tribe of Israel. And then as we move, we're going to alternate to Judah, and then back to Israel, and then back to Judah. And there's this ebb and flow between the northern and southern kingdoms as they're divided and as they each are guilty of their sins before God. But I have it up here on the screen for you, this one phrase, Amos, the righteousness of God. And if there's really just one theological focus of this book, it's this. What do we learn about God? We learn, we learn that He is a righteous God. He is a righteous God. And that righteousness has implications. And for Israel, as we're going to see in just a second, they have a sense of security from God's judgment. But it is a false sense of security. This theological theme that God is righteous comes out in several different ways through the book. And I've just listed them here. This is, a, this is what a righteous God is like. This is what He's characterized as. He's a God who sees. A God who sees is a God who knows. But this God doesn't just see, He cares. And this God who cares and sees speaks against injustice and unrighteousness in His creation because that's not how He designed it to be. Those who stray from the righteous paths of, of this divine Creator God, God speaks against them. But He doesn't just speak against them empty words. He speaks against them words of judgment, words that come with power. In fact, Amos is going to describe to us, this is going to be like a, a running motif through the book, he describes God as a roaring lion. 
We just left First Peter several weeks ago, and we saw Satan as described as a roaring lion. Well, here the Old Testament prophets describe God as a roaring lion who judges, and his roar is heard throughout all the earth. In fact, that's one reason why probably in the very beginning, verse 1, we have that allusion to this earthquake. It's not just a historical marker, though it does serve a historical marker purpose for us, to help us see where Amos lived and in the time frame in which he served. But it seems to come with a theological intent as well, because right after that, Amos says, the Lord roars from Zion. So just like this natural catastrophe of the earthquake that happened, there's a theological connection that when God speaks and God judges, His roar is so loud and so universal that the entire earth will shake. No nation will go untouched by the roar of the judgment of this God. But He doesn't just roar. He doesn't just judge, but He actually intervenes. He intervenes, as we've even sung this morning, He intervenes in the lives of the oppressed, the lives of those that are pressed down, the righteous and the just who are oppressed by the unjust and the unrighteous. God sees, He cares, He speaks, He judges, He intervenes. But not just that, He also redeems. And this is really where the book of Amos ends up. And and I was telling John this morning, my, my desire this morning is that as we go through the book, that there, there are glimpses of grace, and we're going to end with a glimpse of grace, though that's not the main focus. And, and I want you to feel it. I want you to see that. Because all throughout redemptive history, this God who judges, this God who curses sin and wickedness and evil, always, when He does so, there is promise of blessing, and there is pl- promise of redemption, and there is promise of being reconciled with Him. So I hope we can see that this morning. The basic flow of Amos is pretty simple. We could get more detailed than this as we go through the the book this morning, but we're not going to. We're just going to give you this basic outline. The Lord roars, the Lord speaks, the Lord judges, and there's three aspects we see this. So against the nations in this first part, we read that this morning against Israel herself, which is the bulk of the book from chapters 3 all the way to the end, really. But it's divided into two sections. But the Lord roars in judgment as well as with hope. And we're going to see that at the end. Recently, for some reason, I've been uh, captivated by children's stories. So over Christmas, as we were flying back home, I pulled out my iPad and I began reading the stories of Winnie the Pooh. They were very comforting to me. I don't know why, but for some reason I've been drawn to children's fiction. Maybe adult fiction is too serious. And so as I come to Amos, I think, man, this is pretty heavy. This is it's pretty deep. So recently, though, because of this infatuation with children's fiction, I asked one of our discerning readers and our, one of our entertainment critics, who's a middle schooler as well, and he recommended that I watch Lemony Snicket's a series of unfortunate events on Netflix. And if you're familiar with that book or that story, um, the theme is in the, is in the name of, of the title. It's about a, a family, a, some children who face and encounter this series of unfortunate events over and over again. Their parents are seemingly killed in a mysterious fire in their house, and 
and they're set on this adventure, but they're at the whim and at the power of those that are, all they're concerned about is inheriting the money, trying to get their hands on this money that is left to these children. So the theme song for this story is over and over again, look away, look away, look away. There's nothing here to see. There's no entertainment value. It's just bad. So they just look away. There's no hope here. And in many ways, we come to the book of Amos, and this is what we want to do. We, we would not, by choice, spend much time studying and thinking through the book of Amos. Even what I read this morning, we probably were caught up in the repetition of it a little bit and maybe even lulled to sleep by the repetition of it, but there's just this statement of sin and judgment and sin and judgment and sin and judgment. This is sustained. But for some reason, God has given us something in our desire, something in our human emotion that even when somebody says, hey, look away, what do we want to do? We want to look. Kids, don't read that. Don't, don't look over there. What do they want to do? Read it. Look. Explore. Don't go. That's where they want to go. And in some ways, I think that's exactly what Amos wants the children of Israel and us to do. He draws us in very carefully. He draws in the children of Israel very carefully. In fact, as you go through that first chapter... You can only imagine the people of Israel gathered around where Amos was, which, by the way, Amos was from the south. He wasn't from the north. He's not a professional prophet, as we learn in chapter 7. We'll see that briefly. He's a shepherd. He's a farmer. He's called by God specifically to go to the north and start to prophesy against them. And he shows up, and, he, and as you saw, he begins to speak against all of Israel's enemies, their neighbors, and you can just imagine it as he goes through his message of destruction and judgment on his neighbors, how those people of Israel were listening. Oh, Damascus, the capital of Syria. Their sins and crimes against humanity were deep. Against the children of Israel, they, they broke all the human codes of conduct, of warfare. They're war criminals. They had no sense of human decency. They're inhumane. In fact, every enemy, every nation that Amos speaks against has this characteristic about it. It seems to be wrapped up in war and conflict and how they treat one another even in war and how they enslave one another. And start with Damascus. I'm like, man. And Amos pronounces that they will be crushed by the fire of God. Why? Because they crushed and threshed the people of Gilead. Then he moves to Gaza, the, the place of the, one of the main cities of the Philistine Empire. They're ca- ca- characterized by gross cruelty as well. They take entire peoples and they hand them over to Edom as slaves with no consideration for the young or the old or the mother or the father or the child. It's the whole people is handed over in slavery. And Amos says, God will send his fire. Tyre, they participated in the slavery of the whole people, but it seems that the condemnation 
seems to escalate with Tyre. Why? Because they're a little bit closer. And in fact, as you look at a map, you can see that as Amos is speaking, almost geographically, he's getting narrower and narrower and narrower. Also, relationally, he's, he's speaking about the furthest enemies and he brings in to the closest ones. Tyre had had a covenant of brotherly affection ever since the time of David and Solomon. 250 years, and now they've breached that. So God will send his fire. And you can just see the children of Israel that are listening and the rulers that are there, and they, yeah, Amos, that's right. They deserve it. Yes, God is just to destroy them. Remember, Israel is experiencing great wealth and prosperity. They're experiencing some domination again that they hadn't seen since the time of Solomon. So Amos continues, and he deals with Edom, the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother, and you know how that battle started, and continues. Amos says that Edom continues to chase his brother Israel with a sword, ripping and tearing and attacking, no mercy, no pity, no compassion. God will send His fire. What about the Ammonites? In their willingness to grow, in their power to have land, they willingly destroy human life. The unborn. One commentator wrote, once the material is prized, once the material things are prized above the human, this will bring destruction. Then they come to Moab. This ancient rivalry. And Moab is so hateful that they dig up the bones of their enemy ruler and they burn them just to make a point. The desecration of a human body. So we have these two between Edom and Moab that they really have no concern for life, whether it's the unborn or whether it's the deceased human body. And God says, I will send my fire. And up to this point, you can just see Israel cheering Amos on. Amos, you're from the south, but man, we welcome you with open arms, brother. Keep speaking. And then he turns and says, and Judah. Ooh. Now here's an interesting twist. A southerner speaking against his own people. And Amos says, Judah, you are condemned as well for breaking the law of God. You abandoned the truth. You went after lies. You followed false gods. And as a result, God will send His fire on you as well. Can't you just see the self-righteousness bubble up in the hearts of these Israelites? You got it. Man, Amos, I don't know where you're from, but you are speaking truth. We will dominate everybody. Judah, all of our nations around us, all of our enemies. Look at this wealth that we're experiencing. Look at this prosperity. I mean, we have clothes, we have wine, we have parties, we have houses, we have guest houses, we have altars, we have sacrifices. We are on the path of God's blessing. And then he says, 
Israel. For three transgressions and four against you, God will not revoke his punishment. Chapter 2, verse 6. And it's interesting here that finally, as we've had this formula for three sins and for four, and literally those haven't been listed out for us in every occasion, but here with Israel, they are. They're listed out specifically. And let's read that again and be reminded, what is God's condemnation on them for three transgressions of Israel and for four? Here is why the judgment of God is coming, because they sell the righteous for silver. Those who are actually just and righteous and good people, they manipulate them, they sell them, they use them for their physical, materialistic profit. And the needy, those who actually need wealth, those that need to be cared for, those that need, have, have basic needs of necessity in their life, food and clothing, they turn them away. Those who are oppressed, the afflicted, they, re, they uh, don't allow them to have justice in the courts. Not only that, though, they have false worship. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profane. There's this rampant immorality which seems to be connected with their false worship of the false gods of the temples there in Bethel. On the very garments that people brought to, to receive a loan or to make a, a vow or a, a pledge, they lay on them in order to commit their immorality. They defile the very elements that are meant to be used in holy worship. The wine that's brought in, probably illegally for fines against these righteous people, is drunk and celebrate, used for celebration and revelry. And God condemns them for this. Their religious sins, their social sins, their personal sins, God condemns them. It says, verse 9, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. Verse 10, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness. Verse 11, I raised up some of your sons for prophets to give you the word, to give you the truth, and yet you have rejected it. You have rejected my care. You have rejected my love. The very ones who were enslaved by other people and you've experienced my deliverance, you should know what that's like. But yet you turn around and you oppress others and you push down others and you crush them under your feet. The very ones who have experienced the grace of God rebel against the grace of God. This is not an easy message. Amos speaks in a foreign land, really, in an unfriendly situation. And he speaks judgment against those who are living in luxury and wealth and comfort, thinking that they are living in the blessing of God. And Amos shatters their image. What you think is the blessing of God is his kindness to you, yes. But don't be lulled to sleep by his kindness. You are not safe from the roar of the judgment of God when you abandon his ways 
and when you abandon righteousness and when you oppress the needy among you. Israel is the target of the rest of this prophecy. And as we come to the end of chapter 2, we just stop and we have to ask the question, okay, what, Amos, what's your goal? What's the, what's the intended result that you're looking for, Amos? And I think it's be helpful for us even now as we move through the rest of the book to understand what is he trying to accomplish. Now remember, Amos is not a professional prophet. He's not been doing this his whole life. Most likely, these things that he's going to say over the next several chapters take place maybe over the course of a year, maybe longer. And here's what happens over the course of these prophecies. As Amos speaks them and then writes them down in this fashion so we have them and understand what he covered. What we begin to see is that Amos speaks this judgment and he speaks righteousness and he speaks warning and the people fail to respond in repentance. But what's the result? What, what, is what, Amos, what does Amos really want to see accomplish? And for us this morning, let's just jump into this and see what does God want from us this morning? If we can just bridge the context a little bit. I think the goal of God with the book of Amos is the same for the people of Israel as it is for us today. You who are here this morning, who do not know this God, who speaks and who roars and who judges, He's calling you this morning to recognize that you need a righteousness. That you are incapable of creating on your own. In fact, he's calling you to look at your own life of luxury, your own life of self-indulgence, your own selfishness, and how you treat other people around you. And he's saying, you need to turn away from that and look to me. You need to repent of sin and come to me, the only righteous judge. And we'll explain that a little bit more. But for those of you who say, I am already a child of God. I am here. I am a part of the body of Christ. I am a follower of God. The warning is still very deep to you. Repent of your unrighteousness. Look away from worthless idols, even in your life now. Don't be caught up in the the idols of our culture. Don't be caught up and lulled to sleep by the luxury and the wealth, and the materialism, even of our day. Don't be caught up by the pride of ambition in your workplace, men. Women, don't be so concerned about climbing the ladder that you crush other people on your way. Turn away from meaningless ritualized religion. Don't just view church as something you do to show up on Sunday to appease your guilt and then you go home and everything is good. Realize that what is needed in our lives and the lives of all humanity is a transformation, a real transformation, a heart transformation, a new heart, a new life. God wants us to see people as He sees them. He wants us to see people, He wants us to look at others and and see in them the image of God, the image of their Creator. People are not tools to be manipulated to simply meet our goals or commodities to be used in this life. They're to be loved. They're to be cared for. If they don't know God, 
as a believer, you should have the most interest in introducing them to God through, through your words of righteousness and through your works of righteousness. And if they do know God, they should be treated, oh, so much more with love and care and generosity because they're your brother and sister in Christ. They are joint heirs in grace with you. And what about the luxury? What about the money that we have been given? Do you view it as a resource to be stewarded in this life? A resource to be used for kingdom purposes? A resource to be used to invest, to proclaim the righteousness of God? Or is it a resource that you are simply using to consume and make your life every, ever more comfortable every day, regardless of of the needs that you see around you. So here's what God is wanting to accomplish with His people. Call them to repentance. He wants to see them respond. He wants to see them live lives of righteousness and justice just as He is righteous and just as He is just. Just as He sees and He cares, so also His people should see and care and respond and intervene and be instruments of redemption, be conduits of grace instead of conduits of Injustice, which when you get to chapter 3, this is what exactly what God does. And let's look there. In chapter 3, God calls the nations to bear witness against the people of Israel. In verse 13, he says, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God. I'm going to punish them. And he calls the nations to bear witness against them. And why is this so important? Because what did we forget? At the beginning of chapter 3, we saw this. The nation, or excuse me, Israel was unique again amongst the nations. You only, he says, verse 2, you only have I known, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquity. It seems to echo the words of Jesus in the Gospels, to whom much is given, much will be required. You have been chosen, you have been called out as God's people not to continue in your sin. Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace can abound? May it never be. May it never be. So God gives, through Amos, these rhetorical questions of verse 3 of chapter 3. Are you sure about this, God? Are you sure the judgment's coming? You've heard some of these before. Probably not in this context, but these are familiar. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? What's the answer? No. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No. Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? No. Does a bird fall into a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Of course not. Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? No. So verse 6. Well then, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? No, of course they're afraid. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it. No. Of course, 
If disaster, if judgment comes to a city, he has done it. But there's not without mercy and grace here. Verse 7 of chapter 3, God, again through Amos, says this, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servant, the prophets. The Lord, the Lord always, before he judges, this is the expectation, before he judges, he will warn, he will send a messenger, he will proclaim the judgment that's coming, he will offer a chance for repentance. So Amos says, the lion has roared, who will not fear? It's coming. The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? And Amos says, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing, because I can do nothing but this. The condemnation continues in chapter 4. And Amos now begins to address specific issues in the congregation of Israel. And chapter 4, verse 1, is quite in your face. Hear this, you cows of Bashan. Who is he speaking to? Let's keep reading. Who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Oh, Amos just called the women of Israel cows. Do you think he got their attention? These kind of women, he says, are nothing more than meat Grazing, ready to be slaughtered. This wasn't a compliment. They oppressed the poor. Women, ladies, do you view your life and everything you have as simply something to accumulate? to find comfort and ease, to spend your days lying, being massaged, drinking, eating, commanding your husband to come, feed me, give me a drink. Maybe it doesn't correlate with our scenario as much today, right? But isn't there this stereotype, even in our day, the real housewives of whatever city, the rich and wealthy, what's our goal? Simply to be comfortable. Well, how do you get your wealth? Do you have any concern for those around you? Or is it just about the next outfit, the next meal, the next car, the next house, the next marble slab to put in the kitchen, the next wood floor, the next tile? What might it be? Are we so consumed with just that and building our little kingdom, ladies, that you crush the poor and seek to domineer and manipulate your husbands or any other men? For balance, we'll skip to chapter 6. So, men, you realize that I'm not just harping on them. Or Amos. Amos, at the beginning of chapter 6, says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, 
Who are they? Well, they're the notable men. And there's a hint of sarcasm here. They're the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. That's what they desire. They desire to be the prominent ones, to be the exalted ones, to be the presidents and the CEOs. The ones of re- men of renown who the nations know their name is famous. It's to them that God comes to the house of Israel. So God very sarcastically says to Amos, pass over to Calme and see, and from there go to Hamath the great. Then go, to, go down to Gath or the Philistines. And here's the question you should ask. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Oh, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Oh, woe to you, men, who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, invent for themselves instruments of music. Now, that, again, this is this full of sarcasm and rhetoric. And, and what Amos is saying, look, you, you are judging yourselves to be great men, and you're not. You think you're like David, and you're not. But yet, you're setting yourself up to be so. Verse 6, who drink wine in bowls, probably better buckets, and they anoint themselves with the finest oils and lotions. Okay, some of you guys, it doesn't matter, but hair product, cologne. But here's the condemnation on these men who are all only concerned about self-exaltation, enjoying the pleasures of this life. Here's the condemnation, verse 7. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. Amos says through God. God says through Amos to them. If you want to be the first among the nations, if that's your main thing, if you want to be the prominent one, if you want to be the exalted one, you want to be the men of renown, then here's my judgment on you. You will be the first to go into judgment. You want to be first? I'll let you be first. You will be ruined. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. Just read Daniel. The ruling class, the men of wealth, are taken into captivity first. And in the middle of this, in chapter 5, between the condemnation of both men and women... In some ways, you really have the high point of the whole book. Here's the message. Chapter 5, verse 5. God says through Amos, Seek me and live. Verse 6 of chapter 5. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench. Verse 14. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Verse 15, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Verse 21, here's the condemnation and here's the continued call to righteous living and worship. Verse 21, he says, therefore, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, your ritualized religion. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
Why? Because this wasn't about a heart of obedience and faith. It was simply about ritualized religion to appease the sense of guilt. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Here's what he requires, verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is what God wants. He wants people of justice. He wants people of righteousness. He wants people of obedience and faith, of true transformation. Why? Because He is a God of righteousness. Therefore, His people should be people of righteousness and people of justice. They shouldn't be people that are just concerned about consuming things and living lives of luxury and ease and comfort to, to the destruction and oppression of others. So these are, these are not my people. If you're like this, judgment's coming. And there's a sense in which we come to verse, or chapter 5 and verse 24 and he says, but let justice roll down like waters. Let it flow. And righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This, this should be the, the characterization of God's people and of your life is that righteousness and justice should just be everywhere. No injustice. No unrighteousness. Perfect worship of God. Perfect love of your neighbor, your fellow human. And we come here and there's a sense in which finally we come to the crux of the matter and it's this kind of righteousness, this kind of life that's flowing over with justice and righteousness for others and love for God, it's impossible without His intervention. So with that, let's skip to the very end. Chapter 9. And finally, the destruction is imminent. They're closer to it. And at the very end of the, of the book, we have this glimpse of hope. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes will, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains will drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. The creation is being restored. The nations that were away and under God's judgment are being brought in. The kingdom of David is being reestablished. Verse 14, And I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit, which earlier in Amos, he says that you're going to try to do that, and you're not going to be able to enjoy any of it. You're not going to eat the fruit, and you're not going to drink the wine, because that's a part of judgment. But now, you will be able to. But here's the key. Verse 14 and verse 15, he says, I will do this. God will do this. God will restore their fortunes. God will plant them on their land. God will do this. There are many New Testament correlations that we should and could make this morning. Let me just give you two of significance. First, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 16 to 21. I just have verse 21 up here for you. Paul says this about Christ. 
For our sake, God the Father made Him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. The perfectly righteous one, the perfectly just one, became sin. Why? So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. What's not captured there is verse 16 and through 20 before that, where Paul says, From now on, therefore, we, we regard no one as according to the flesh. Even though once we regarded Christ according to the, to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old ways are passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, so that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, no longer counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why? Because for our sake, He was made sin so we could become righteousness. The other one, and we'll just mention briefly, is when James quotes Amos directly in this last section, speaking of how the Gentiles are now being brought in to the people of God. He quotes specifically verse 12 in Acts 15, that all the nations who are called by my name are being brought in. Again, how is this happening? It's happening through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans, he's the just one and he's the justifier. Why? Because all of us are sin and all of us are guilty. The wages of sin is death. We're all under this judgment. We're all under this condemnation. Yet through the just one, the righteous one, God himself, he has become our justifier. He declares us to be just. He declares us to be righteous. And he doesn't just declare us to be that through Christ. He makes us righteous. And he causes us to grow in righteousness, to transform our lives. And here in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul makes this point. We who have been reconciled to God and are reconciled to one another in the church have become ambassadors of reconciliation for the world. The nations need this. Israel needs this. They need a God who is just, yes. But they need a God who will also reconcile and forgive and justify and transform. Let's pray.